Well, good morning again. Uh, this weekend, David and Joy and I had a great time. We went off to our, uh, Pacific Northwest District for the Evangelical Free Church, a conference uh, up at Black Lake, and uh, we had just a great time. That's a beautiful area up there. We had a sunny day on Saturday for the second half of the conference, heard some good speakers, and got to meet local free church pastors, really from Oregon to Washington, actually to not so local from Anchorage, Alaska, which is part of our district, came down. We had one church come down from there. It's just a great time being together, worshiping with other local ministry church leaders. Um, we were glad to be able to go, and uh, thanks for making that possible, congregation, for us to go to that. Uh, well, we're back today in the middle of this little mini-series we've been calling the Why Series. If you're new today, our normal diet is to go through books of the Bible. Uh, we've gone recently through Philippians and 2 Timothy, and after Easter we'll be jumping into Mark, which I'm really excited about, the Gospel of Mark. But we're doing a little mini-series right now that we're calling the Why Series which is a bit more topical, but hopefully text-driven. Uh, as at Bethany Church, we believe God speaks through His Word, and when we open His Word, God speaks to us. Um, but we've been asking these questions of why. Why do we do certain things in the church life? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? We want Bethany Church to be a place where it's safe to ask really qu any question, that questions would be safe, and that we would seek answers together. We would come together as a church body to seek answers from God's Word where He does speak, where we can be sure that we have the truth and the right answer and seek wisdom together from the Word of God and those who've come before us. Without the why behind something, we really don't understand its purpose. What's it for? It would be like, without the why, the Apostle Paul jumping in a time machine, if that were so possible, <laughs> And coming to our era and us handing him an iPad, what would he do with that? He'd look at that thing. Would he be able to interact with it at all? Probably not. Uh, if he didn't know the why behind it, what is it? Why, do I, why are you handing me this strange thing behind that device? Well, in our church life, we're called to understand the why so we can grow in our understanding of our love for God, our understanding of our common life together here, our love for one another, and, and, and bear a clear message to the world. Why do we do certain things? Today, it's the why behind communion. Why communion? There's nothing like communion to uh, pique a child's curiosity. Or maybe you're visiting today or, or new to church life, and you're kind of wondering the same thing. My kids pretty early on said, uh, Daddy, why, why do we eat a cracker in church and, and drink some juice uh, every so often. I love it. I love that question. I'm so glad they asked that question. We want our kids to ask those questions, but can you answer? That's a different story, isn't it? Can you answer that question when it comes? And, and what does it mean for the life of our church? What's happening on a Sunday morning when we come to this table? What's happening in this room and for us and our hearts? And who should take it? Who should come to this table? We'll grab that outline. Hopefully you got it. Have your Bibles open to Matthew, and we'll get some other verses as well, but have your uh, outline open as there as we've got some fill-ins for it to help you today follow along. As we look at the why behind communion, or as, or as it's been called, the Lord's Supper, uh, by looking to three avenues of clarity we're going to look at today. Three avenues of clarity today. The history, the meaning, and the blessing. The history, the meaning, and the blessing of communion uh, and our hopes to gain a greater appreciation for what Christ has given us for our good, for our unity, and for our nourishment. Well, our first avenue is this. Let's talk a little about the history of communion. You know, we talked about baptism. We did a little bit of that history. 
Um, we're going to do that a little similar today as well. But the history of communion, where did it come from? Why do we do this? And why has the church been doing it for thousands of years? We heard the passage read this morning from Matthew 26 um, by Leslie, where Jesus initiates some new meal, a new meal that his disciples are to practice. In fact, a meal that he, he, he commands them to do it. Did you hear those words? Take, eat. Take and drink. And he went on to say, keep doing it, a command, keep doing this until he was to come. And if we keep doing it, we proclaim his death till he comes. We're commanded, do this, take this until Jesus returns. And Paul adds that in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me, he adds to the words of Christ. Do this, do this. But is it something entirely new that Jesus uh, initiated? Is, is, or is there a precedent? And I think there is. Let's take a look at this. The history of eating with God. That's what we're going to look at. The history of eating with God. It's our, our, our sub-point there under number one, you see. <clears throat> Let's look a little bit at that history because it's pretty amazing. But I don't know if you know this. God loves, he loves to share food with his people. He loves to share food with his people. And so much like, amen, right? We like that, to have a feast, a meal. It's pretty amazing. A celebratory rejoicing, feasting God, and he wants his people to do the same we see when we look at his word or the history of God's people. All the way back to the Garden of Eden now. Let's think for a minute. God gave his people the best food to eat. Take a minute and think in your mind, what's your favorite meal? What's your favorite food? What do you just love to have? Maybe it's your comfort food or uh, maybe it's a fancy holiday meal you like. What is your favorite food? You think about that. Well, that's nothing. As You've got that picture in your mind. It's nothing compared to the food God had for his people, I would think, back in the garden. He said in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat, there it is, of every tree of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not. So everything there except that one tree was, it was fair game. You know, it was on. You could just go at it, have it. It was good. It was tasty. You could eat it. Not only that, but at that time, they lived in unbroken fellowship with God, didn't they? Unbroken fellowship with God before sin. So every meal in the garden now would have been eaten in the perfect presence of God. God feasting, eating with his people. Imagine that. God's real presence as you feasted on this amazing God food, whatever it was, we don't know, but I think it was great. God was there. They ate with God. They ate with God. Well, even after entrance of sin into the world, God still wants his people to eat in his presence. There's something that happens when we share a meal, isn't there? There's just something that happens when you sit down with somebody it's why we say, oh, let's grab coffee. You know, you get a muffin or something, coffee, or, or let's go out to dinner together. There's something that happens that is just more meaningful and intimate than if you said, let's just sit down at a table across each other in this cold room and let's spend time together, isn't there? We just, we just know that. Well, we get to the Old Testament, and after Moses had um, received the Ten Commandments, and God graciously revealed himself to them and what he expected of them, God asked Moses, and some of the leaders to, come on up the mountain, guys, and let's have a feast. Come on up the mountain and let's feast. From Exodus 24, 
Then Moses and Aaron, uh, uh, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders went up and they saw God of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What was that meal like? <laughs> what was that meal like? Moses, pass the bread. You know, like, what, was, what was that like? How, I, I, I mean, it's just an amazing thought. God would often celebrate or commemorate um, a, a covenant he'd made with his people or some, a momentous occasion by having them sit and eat and drink in his presence. You know, Moses had just received the covenantal law and now they feast with God. That's what we see taking place there. Or here's one more. Let's do uh, one, or two more actually, but uh, one more Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 14.16 uh, after this tithe of 10% they were to give from the grain offering and, and the wine and the oil offering to God, they were to partake and feast as well. They were to feast too. Here's the verse. And you shall eat there uh, before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. God allowed for feasts to take pr- place in his presence. And he loved doing that with his people. He always has. From the garden, and even after the fall, we sit down with him, we eat with him, we feast with him. And we will someday again, too, as we wait for this final feast with our God. Here's Revelation 19, 9. And the angel said to me, this is John writing this, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There it is. It'll be the garden restored. The garden restored. And even better, because we will sit with Christ and feast in a land where sin has been banished and dealt with, destroyed. Restoration is a feast. That's good news, isn't it? I like a good party, a good feast, a good meal, don't you? Restoration is a feast. Do you think of God like this? as one who loves to sit with his people and eat and feast with them. He eats with them in his presence. Wouldn't you like to be at that table? (laughs) Don't you want to be at that feast? If you ever were invited to a great dinner party, isn't that the one you want to be invited to and be at? I do. Think of the greatest feast you have been at with the greatest company, even. Maybe a holiday or some other time. It's nothing compared to that final feast of heaven. Nothing. Nothing. Some of our, your best recipes in here, I'm sorry, they are good, <laughs> but even that feast is probably going to be better. I might have offended somebody today, sorry. <laughs> and it's going to go on and on and on forever. Forever. Wouldn't you like to be there? Well, as our mini-history lesson goes on, this morning is going to show us even how you can be there if you're not sure, and how communion points us there, we're going to see. Well, the first one was uh, the history of eating with God. The second one is this, communion is the reframing of the Passover, Uh, the restructuring, the reframing, the recasting, whatever word you want to use there. Communion is really the reframing of that. Jesus takes an old covenant meal, Passover, and he turns it into a new covenant meal for his people. Passover. It was one of those other meals that we, uh, we think of God eating with his people in history. The Passover was one of those meals. 
that God would have, and he commanded them to repeat uh, yearly. Do you remember the story? The Israelites are in slavery. They're in bondage in Egypt. They're captive for uh, 400 years. And God is beginning this process of freeing them, liberating them, saving them out of slavery. And it was the last of the plagues that God sent on Pharaoh in Egypt was the visiting of this angel of death that would come. But that angel of death would come, and when he would come, the, the firstborn son of every family would die. So we don't often think about it, but that firstborn angel of death was coming for everybody in that area, not just Egyptians, but Jews as well. Unless, do you remember what God told them to do? God told them unless they would take a, um, a lamb, and here's what Exodus tells us they were to do. They'll sacrifice the lamb, they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. There's feasting again. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. If they didn't do it, they were going to be just like the Egyptians. They had to do this. I'll pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This special meal was so that God's people for the Passover as they were to practice it now after that day, that they would remember their deliverance. God set it up for a purpose. They would worship as they ate, and they would taste the food and their, their senses. God even wanted to, to awaken their senses of, of taste and of smell, and it would activate their, their minds and stir in their hearts when they were using their senses to eat the lamb and the Passover feast, and they would go back and they'd go, oh yes, the meal. God delivered us. They'd think of it fresh again. God delivers. Yes, that's who he is. He's the delivering, saving God, and I can taste it. I can smell it, the lamb. That's who he is. How many of you forever will associate saltine crackers and grape juice with communion? I mean, if you grew up in the church, you've been here for more than a year, you just, that's just what, it, you eat one at home, you're like, oh yeah, communion. <laughs> you just sort of do that. You associate that. It's supposed to do that. It's supposed to do that. Habits are powerful. They form us. They shape us. That's why we do some things in the church over and over again. Have the Passover every year. As often as you eat of this, remember me. That's what Jesus was doing. Did you catch that in the Matthew passage? Hopefully you got it open there. They were celebrating Passover. That's why we read a little bit longer above just the Lord's Supper because they're celebrating Passover there. And the disciples would have had that Exodus story in their mind. They're eating Passover and Jesus says, take, eat. This is my body? They're like, what? This is Passover. Take, drink. This is my blood, which is poured out for your forgiveness. What, Jesus? I mean, they must have been. They had to be, like, a little bit uh, confused because they were there to celebrate Passover. They know Passover as good Jews. And yet now Jesus is saying these strange words. He's reframing for them the meal of Passover. He's putting it in a new light. That's, a I guess, a good way to put it. For the new covenant. 
his death for us. His death for us, which leads to our second avenue. That's a little bit of the history for us of where it came from. But what's its meaning for us? What's the meaning of communion now? What's the meaning? So I don't think it came just out of left field. I do think there's a history of God eating with his people. I think we see in that passage, and we're going to look a little more even, that Jesus is reframing the Passover for them. But what's it mean? We're going to look at a few meanings, although there's many. There are a few really important ones I want us to see this morning. But we've got to get a quick overview of the different traditions as well, like we did with baptism, because I know in a room uh, like this and with different histories, we come from different places, different churches, different views of communion. And so um, this is one that we want to go to and just think about for a minute. Real quickly, though, just kind of go over to make sure we have an understanding that there are different views in the church. And as a church, we have to come down and say, this is what we think Scripture's saying here. And so we do that graciously, generously, uh, in good faith, um, even being able to agree in a lot of other areas with some of these traditions. Well, let's look at the first one. There's really only three, I mean, there's more nuances, but three main views that have taken place in church history. First one is the Catholic uh, tradition. You see there we've got pretty much the same elements, although, I mean, you probably for Protestant churches could put bread and juice, but I was like, eh, it's, it, we're just putting it up there. Bread and wine up there, but you know, you get the picture, the same similar elements there. Bread and wine, but so a Catholic church would uh, be bread and wine, those elements, and those who had been baptized uh, into the church uh, and usually probably gone through some sort of uh, confirmation type of class would be those, but the baptized, those who have come into the church, would be the ones who could take it. Here's where the, the main major difference is, though. Catholic church believes that when the priest takes the elements, and, and consecrates them, in that moment, they become the real physical body and blood of Jesus. So, hmm, maybe you didn't know that. The real physical body and blood of Jesus. So it's a, a, a re-sacrificing of sorts, they would even call it, of Christ, um, as his body is now in the, there in those elements, even though they still taste like wine and bread. Okay? So there's a difference there. Uh, Lutheran view. Uh, same elements for the most part. The baptized take it, and yet they're a little different. Luther didn't love the idea of it actually becoming uh, actually physical body and blood of Christ because Luther thought, you know, Christ is uh, in heaven, and how does that work? And he's physically there, and yet they still say that in, with, and under is their language. In, with, and under the bread is still the real um, blood and body of Christ. Think of a sponge. That's what they mean, the Lutherans mean. A sponge soaks up the water. So Lutheran kind of believes in, with, and under the elements. In some way, there is the real physical body and blood of Jesus soaked up somehow. Most Protestants, uh, same elements. Uh, and most Protestants would say this is for those who have trusted Christ, who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The presence, though, how do they view Christ's presence? That's the third column. I should have mentioned what that means. Christ's presence, for most Protestants, uh, I would say it's a symbolic presence for all of them. And for most of them, I would say, they also think in some way there is a unique spiritual presence of Jesus in that moment. That he's uniquely here and present as we take by faith to gather those elements. Okay? So let's look, though, for us at Bethany Church, what it means. Bread and wine. Let's look at the bread and wine. Let's talk about them 
for just a couple minutes as we look at some of these meanings now. After that real quick, real general overview. What do these elements represent um, themselves? What do they represent? Well, for centuries, the bread and wine represented uh, and stood as a reminder, as we said, of the Passover lamb from Exodus. But that night, Jesus did something astounding, jaw-dropping, absolutely. When he took, he took those elements and he connected them to his body and, and, and his blood, his body broken for us on the cross, his blood shed for our sins so that God would pass over our sin and put the judgment on Christ. When we take communion, we're, we're looking at a visible picture. We're passing, we're holding, we're touching, we're tasting, we're swallowing a visual picture of Christ's death for us. That's what those elements mean. It's, it's the gospel in visible form. That's what it is. The gospel in visible form. Uh, Augustine called them visible words. He called the bread and juice visible words. They're visible words. Symbols that function as a sign and a seal of God's grace and, and what he's done. And often we proclaim when we take them, don't we? Or we hear read Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. There's Paul making that connection for us to Passover. As often as we do it, we're proclaiming this. Christ, my Passover lamb, has been killed, and here is the proof his sacrifice was for me. The bread and the juice. It's amazing. But Paul goes on in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.26, we proclaim his death. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, we're doing that. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's the connection right there to his death. That's what the bread and juice mean. And I want us to think on that again today as we take. Think on that again as we take today. What those mean. Well, as we continue down this, this second avenue of meaning, let's look at another one. The, 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 the elements themselves, the bread and wine was the first, but how about the meal as nourishment? The meal as nourishment, that's another meaning to what's happening here. When we take again in faith, in faith now, we want to be clear, it's, it's, it's um, based upon taking it in faith, when we take the elements of bread and juice, there is real spiritual now nourishment for us. In much the same way you eat food and your body takes in the calories and there's real physical, actual nourishment for us, when we take, there's no magic, right? We're not saying there's a literal translation of those into the physical presence of Jesus. We're not saying that. But we do find refreshment. It's for that. We do find spiritual nourishment as we feed upon Christ by faith again. Jesus in John 6 said this. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. I believe Jesus is clearly not speaking of the literal eating of his flesh or drinking of his blood. His disciples would have thought, you're crazy. What do you mean? I don't think he's literally speaking right there, John 6, of, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it is, it's, it is weird. If you're here the first time today, you're probably going like, this is freaky. <laughs> because it is, it is different, isn't it? You might be hearing going, this is, really? Eat his flesh and drink his blood? So what does he mean then? If he's not saying literally there, when we feed on Christ in faith, in communion, we meet him there again in a fresh a renewal almost of his grace and his work in our life and experience as we take all the benefits it brings to those that, who have faith. It's not just the act, but who have real faith in him. True food, he says. True drink, he says. When we do this, that sustains us. It's good for us to do this. It sustains us. It sustains you in life's uh, difficult trials and journeys that we're going on in the life uh, of a disciple. And if it is true food and true drink for us, then it in a very real way means the Lord's Supper belongs to the weak Christian. The weak Christian. I love this quote by, uh, try to say his name, it's uh, Thabiti Anabwile is his name, but I love his quote. His quote's easier to understand than his name. Uh, No one comes to the table in unblemished worthiness or undiminished strength. We come to the table in need, all of us. We come to the table fresh from battles with sin and discouragement and even unbelief in the world. We need to be fed again. We need to be fed again. We need to receive the sustenance that, that Christ, the real risen Christ, affords us. And by faith, by faith, we receive nourishment we need as we imbibe the benefits of Jesus' atoning work for sinners and weaklings. Here's what that means. If you're a true follower of Christ, but down today, discouraged today, not feeling like you want to be here today, right here, right now, this table is the exact place you need to be today. That's what that means. This table is for you, for you, for me. And that's who it's for. But let's be clear, who is communion for? I want to be clear today. This is who communion is for. It is only for true followers of Christ who have repented in faith. That's who this is for. I want to be clear today. I want you to hear that. This is for those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. Because if you think about it, only when you take it in faith 
or that this would actually, that these symbols actually signify something real that you believe? Are you nourished? If it was just a rote act that had no meaning connected to you personally, what would it actually positively, how could it positively benefit you? It's for those that truly believe that behind this symbols, there's a reality of a risen Christ. That's why it's for those who believe. Because we take it by faith again. We take it in belief. But we're nourished. We are nourished together when we do it. Um, and not just as individuals, not just as individuals, which leads to another uh, area of meaning, the meaning of unity for us. The meal means unity. Unity. Unity for us. So not only does communion point to our unity with Christ as an individual saved and placing their faith in Him, but a unity here in this room as we take it together amongst His people. It points to that unity too. The unity of Bethany Church, of those who profess faith in Him, those who have been regenerate, born again. It points to that unity too. Together. It's a really clear sign of the significance of what it means to be part of a church, our, our, our unity, and how we live our life together. It's, a, another, it's connected kind of as we talked about what does it mean to be a member of a church, unity. Uh, we talked about last week, unity. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, because there is one bre- bread, speaking of this unity, we, are me- we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, Jesus Christ. It's unity here. The problem was, in, Corinth, in the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, the problem was um, they weren't together. They were not unified in the Corinthian church. There were divisions. There was disunity. There was strife. There was arguing. And yet they would sit down together for communion. There was sin that was not dealt with in this church. And they were failing in seeing their unity in Christ. And so the divisions they had, they brought to the table. She's here. She's, she's sitting down with us. At t- Look how much is on her plate. You know, I told him if I saw him again, you know, I was, you know, he's in trouble. He's here. He has the audacity to sit down across from me at the table. That's what they were doing. They're bringing that, and that's disunity. They're bringing that to the table. Have you ever sat with your family at a dinner table after a fight that hasn't been resolved? All we all have. Everybody in this room, or a spouse, or a friend. It's painful, isn't it? It's one of the worst times to not have a resolution. Because you're sitting there, you're... Sitting, staring across from each other, watching each other chew. You know? it's, like, it's like intimate, isn't it? You're wa- it's like you're, it's, I mean, that's what's going It's hard. It's painful, isn't it? But that's what was going on in Corinth. That's what was going on. And Paul says, you know, I, I can't commend you, he says to them. In fact, he says to them, I got to warn you. I got to warn you guys. And Paul's words, I think, are even a well-needed warning to us because I was, I was staggered as I looked at them again this week. And I want us to see them. I, I would be doing an uh, injustice to you as your pastor if I didn't also take you here 
as we talk about communion. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11. Uh, tw- uh, verse 27 we'll start in. So Paul's in, the, in this context of talking about the Lord's Supper, passing it on to them. He's already addressed in this letter a lot of the divisions that are taking place, and yet now he brings them right down into the context of the table you see in front of you here even. Uh, so chapter 11, verse 27 through 31, we're going to read. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup, drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, what Jesus has done, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we'd not be judged. He's saying, look honestly at yourself. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's sobering. There was discipline by God on this church in Corinth because he loved them that manifested, Paul says, it's hard to hear in real weakness in the congregation, in real sickness, and at least maybe in a couple or in one or a couple cases, he says death. He says death. Because they were taking their sin lightly and their broken relationships lightly. Which means they were taking the table lightly. Which means they were taking the gospel lightly. Which means they were denigrating the name and work of Christ and taking what he had done lightly. Sinning against the body and blood of the Lord was the words Paul used. They were taking it lightly. Now that doesn't mean as we even already said, that the table is only for super-Christians. <laughs> That's not what it means. That's not what Paul's saying here. Or who those, like, that Paul's only saying, you better clean up your act before you can do this. Paul's not saying that. He's not saying communion is just for super-Christians. Because we already said it, it's to feed the strong and the weak. It's to feed all those who've trusted in Christ. But it does mean for you and I that if I feel like I have a broken relationship with someone in our church, I should, you should, we should seek to restore that before taking communion. Because I do think Paul's warning is real. And I do think that really happened in the Corinthian church, that part of even discipline on somebody was an illness, or the death is hard to comprehend what God would have been doing there. But I do think it means that. First Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it means we should seek to restore relationships. I do think before we take this, so I'd encourage us to think through that today. It's okay even for a believer on a day like that to let it pass. I think Paul's saying. But it does also mean this. It doesn't mean to be a super Christian or have your act all together before you come here. But it does mean I think too that we should examine 
Paul says, examine him or herself. Examine our heart and life and spend some time maybe even in repentance, silently in our mind, our heart, before we take. It does mean do not take the table lightly. It does mean that. It does mean that. And it does mean we probably, I, would, I think always now, as I'm even reading through it again, we'll have some sort of time of silent reflection or personal examination or silent time of repentance, which we do okay, on occasion. Um, but I think moving forward, maybe every time. Well, let's take a look at our final avenue. We've got the history. We've got the meaning. I want to see the blessing as we move into the table now, actually here that we have today. The blessing. I think we've clearly seen many of the blessings already as we talk about communion uh, in its spiritual nourishment, in a real nourishment, in the visual picture of the gospel, visual words we have here. But I want to go a little bit deeper as we close. We use the word communion, which Scripture uses, and it uses the um, Lord's Supper, and actually even uses the word uh, Eucharist, which other churches use. We use the word communion. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says we, we commune, or it means we participate, commune, participate together in the, the blood and body of Christ. But we're also communing together. Because what we're doing is we do this together now. We're talking unity we're recommitting, renewing, refreshing the new covenant. As often as you do until I come, right? You proclaim Christ's death. We're renewing the new covenant together. I remember my wedding day pretty clearly when I covenanted before God to unite my life and everything, life, soul, body, everything we unite uh, to my wife, Robin. You remember that. Well, if baptism kind of functions as a symbol and identifier by pointing to the wedding day union of the believer in Christ, our initial wed- wedding, uh, is weddedness a word? Maybe. To him, ba- if baptism points to that day, uh, that wedding day union of a believer in Christ, covenant together, the Lord's Supper now functions more as a symbol and identifier pointing um, now uh, forward functions as are like our the date nights you have or the special getaway you have with as a couple a great meal together the ongoing investment in your intimacy as a couple the lord's supper points to that Uh, it's a covenant renewal for his people when we do this together we're given an ongoing kind of means of grace and fellowship as the bride, the church, with our groom, Jesus Christ. We're coming, refreshing that. We renew the covenant together, what he's done, and God's promise to not treat us justly for our sins, but to give us mercy. That's what we're doing together when we come to this table. And if you want to get really intimate, and you probably never thought of it this way, as sex functions in a marriage, kind of as a covenant renewal of what you said at the altar before those witnesses, the Lord's Supper is covenant renewal for marriage between the bride and lamb. Probably haven't thought of it that way before. It's maintenance of our intimacy with Jesus. In many ways, how we do that in the covenant of marriage. This is a new covenant, a bride, a a, a groom. Ephesians 5, marriage points to Jesus in the church. It's a real blessing when we do it together because we're renewing that covenant together. 
all of us in this room, the intimacy we have, closer than the bond of marriage even. Well, here's the final one. As we approach the table today, there's real blessing, a real blessing in the spiritual presence of Christ. Real blessing. He is here, I believe, in a unique way or working in a unique way every communion Sunday when we do this. He's here. Not physically in the elements. I want to be clear on that. Not physically in the elements. The bread and the juice don't change and transform when I do something here. That's not what we're saying. But he's spiritually present right now in this room and residing in the hearts of those who trusted him. He's here right now. We know when two or three are gathered, he is in our midst. And right now as we approach this table, he's here. I believe it is more than just a commemoration. It is more than just a commemoration. Even in calling the elements symbols, it's still a reality that he is here in some mysterious way working. His spirit is truly uniting even across space and time, his body and blood as we take in faith the bread and juice. We benefit by doing this. Jesus' body broken for you. His blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take a couple moments and spend that time just in quiet reflection, uh, self-examination, as Paul said, maybe even a time of repentance for you as we approach again today, thinking through, what does it mean, Jesus? Help me see in a fresh way how you're spiritually present today. How are you feeding me through this, Jesus? Before we take, as the band plays a little, let's spend some time in um, just silently examining ourselves as our servers are going to come forward too, and we probably are going to need, yeah, servers, you can come forward as well. Let's spend some time in silent examination.